0: live for a session sometime you can join our weekly control the room facilitation lab it's a free event to meet fellow facilitators and explore new techniques so you can apply the things you learn in the podcast in real time with other facilitators sign up today at voltagecontrol.com facilitation lab if you'd like to learn more about my new book magical meetings you can download the magical meetings quick start guide a free pdf reference with some of the most important pieces of advice from the book Download a copy today at voltagecontrol.com slash magical dash meetings dash quick dash guide. Today, I'm with Tricia Conyers, the founder of Island Inspirations, where she is a meeting designer and facilitator. She is also creator of Facilitating Engagement, a course available at Voltage Control Learn and part of our facilitation certification training. Welcome to the show, Tricia. Tricia.
1: Hi, Doug. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Of course. It's so good to have you. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. And this recording comes right at the beginning of 2022 as we're kind of ending the holiday season and getting the new year started. So it's my first recording after coming off a break. Been really looking forward to it. So I can't wait to dive in.
1: Excellent. I'm, I'm so um, honored to be at the top of your calendar <laughs> for the year. It's great.
0: Yeah. So let's get started with just a little bit of background on you know how you got your start. How did you get into facilitation and change and, and just thinking about engagement? Sure.
1: Well, very early on in my career, I joined a consulting agency that was focused around implementing change. And so for the sort of first couple of years in my career, I actually worked, you know, on the front line as a change agent, working with organizations to change their performance, right? And to help them see how they could achieve different levels of results to where they were today. And a big part of a big part of working with them to achieve change was to do that in a way that was facilitative, right? I didn't have, I wasn't an expert in their content. So it was about sort of facilitating ideas and changes and new ways of working through them, right? So facilitation was a, was a part of how change was delivered, so to speak, or how change was implemented. And that was a big part, I think, of my introduction into facilitation is kind of working in that way with others.
0: You know, I'm curious, you know, as someone who was immersed in kind of change initiatives and helping companies navigate change, what did you find to be the most common reason for change to stall out or not manifest in the ways that people had hoped?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, there we often ask we used to ask clients this all the time, right? You know, why does why does change fail? And there are so many reasons why change can fail. I think you could, you could pick from sort of anything when working on change, change is very much a journey, right? And I mean, it's a reason why people call it a journey and the word journey symbolizes a lot of things, right? It symbolizes the up and downs that you're going to go through the fact that it's not just going to be smooth, right? That it's going to have challenges along the way and that it's going to, it's going to take time. Right. And I think, for me part of why change fails is that there are some big obstacles that you you face along that journey and at any point in time one can be too big for us to to sort of get past right and so they can that's why you can, i say you can fail for any any one of very many reasons right i think though you can kind of start to articulate what those challenges are like most often the first challenge is that sort of inertia challenge, which is just getting started, right? It just get people not knowing exactly how to get started implementing change, right? That can be the first big challenge. And then just as that starts to happen and they sort of figure out well what they need to do, you get to that sort of knowing, doing challenge. The fact that I kind of know what to do, but how do I actually create the space to do it? Because people get in this dynamic between between the work that I have to deliver and the change work that I have to do, right? You know, that there's, I have my day job still to do, but then I have all these other things, which means changing my day job. So that sort of knowing, doing challenge and being able to cross that so that you actually can start to do some different things is another big challenge that you see.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. You touched on a lot of interesting points that I'd like to touch back on. And let's talk about first the one around committing resources and time. Mm-hmm. Because when I hear people say that, oh, I'm too busy to dedicate this, and but then I hear leadership saying, well, this is the most important thing, you know, it's like, where's the dedication or where's the investment happening? And I, I feel like so much change is, is just starved of oxygen.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, t- I totally agree. You hear that all the time, right? That this is really important. Yet we don't have anybody to work on it, right? So it's like okay, um, it's a bit of a an oxymoron, right? In the sense that you know it, it can't be both, right? And then if it if it is really important, can we create the space for people to work on it? And and it, the thing with change as well is it's not something that you can contract out. It's your organization that you want to change and it's the way that your people work and it's the results that you get that you want to change. So to say that you're going to give that to somebody else to do for you, right? So you get this kind of like, well, we don't have people to do it, so we hire these other people to work on change. But it's not those people that have to change. It's the people within your business. You have to create the space for them to learn new things and to practice new ways of working and to actually try new things, right? It's not something that you can just carve out and give to someone
0: else. Yeah. I like that point you make around that you're practicing new ways of working and trying new things. And a consultant can help show you some techniques. Ideally, they're not just importing best practices (laughs) because you might not be able to just like forklift that thing in. So ideally, if there is a consultant, they're showing you different mindsets and different Mm -hmm. ways to think about it. But if people aren't practicing and trying these things out and learning and reporting back then you don't build that capability
1: right they have to build a muscle right um they have to build the muscle to be able to do it themselves and they can't just there's a great a great benefit of having external perspective and consultants who kind of can help you rethink things or see things a different way right that external perspective is a great um catalyst for change to sort of see, see things differently but ultimately People have to figure out what works in their organization, in their culture, and how it works for them. So they have to have the opportunity to, to practice and try new things and build their own new ways of working and rituals around what they want to change so that they they see the impact of it, right? They have to go through the learning loop for themselves of, mm-hmm. of exploring and trying and reflecting and seeing the connections, which is my point about why you can't contract it out, right? They have to be involved in it
0: yeah you, you can't completely outsource it, you know yeah. and i I would say and one thing that is critical is that accountability piece, like where do we or who is responsible for creating this moment of reflection, this check in time where we're making sure we're making progress,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: Right? Like if we are going to try this stuff out, how often are we going to reflect back and go, what's working? What's not working? What have we learned? And, you know, whether that's a consultant that's helping mm-hmm. do that or someone internally, if we don't have a dedicated resource that's doing that, then, you know, it's probably just disorganized, um, like throwing stuff at the wall and, you know, and not even checking to see if it's sticking.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like you said, I mean, that's a big reason right there. Why change fails, right? Is because we don't take the time to sort of reconnect it to how we work and to embed that in the way that we work so that it doesn't happen again, or even to share those learnings outside of just the team that we work with so that others can benefit from it, right? We're so caught up in the busyness of doing every day and delivering things that, that we don't close the learning loop, right, which is a big reason why change fails.
0: I love this closing the learning loop piece. And I think the other thing to think about on the, on the on the learning loop is can you tighten it? Like how can we you make that learning loop faster mm-hmm. Because the quicker that you have data, you know, and data can sound frightening to some people, but just like knowing whether or not this thing worked or not, you know, it can be as simple as like, did we enjoy that? (laughs) Did it, did we get good ideas from doing this? Uh, Was this painful or was it easy? And if we're, uh, the, the quicker that we can measure and understand, you know, the impact of something, the quicker then we can pivot and try something different.
1: Absolutely. I think that just the word that you've used, the rhythm of doing that, right? The cyclic rhythm of going through the kind of, what are we going to try? Try it and then reflect on if it worked, right? And being able to do that in a frequency that helps us move things forward, right? Like we always say when we work in change as well, it's like you can make huge improvements in a daily meeting so fast because you get a chance to do it every day and reflect. But, you know, that quarterly QPR session that you have, you get four chances in a year, or your strategic planning, you get one chance every year, right? So that frequency has a big impact on your ability to close that learning loop, right, and to to keep going through that
0: frequency of just occurrence. Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon, and um, there's lots of implications of that, right? Like we have these cycles, for instance, like business quarters, right? If we're scrambling to like get a quarterly report out, it might impact the way we we make a decision right now. And is it like, is that the right decision to make in this moment, mm-hmm. given like everything that's happening with our employees and our clients, but Hey, it's the end of the quarter. So we had to do this thing. So, so it's like these cyclical drivers are definitely something that we have to pay attention to, but I think they can force us to make like decisions we wouldn't have otherwise. And so I'm kind of curious, like how have you noticed or, or experimented with kind of Maybe stepping out of the cycles or even learning at a different rate than the cycle. Cause you mentioned the quarterly meeting. How do you improve that quarterly meeting if it's, uh, you know, you just had it, it wasn't great. We're not going to have it again until another quarter. How would you get reps in on that and make sure that we're prepped for next time?
1: Yeah. So what that makes me think about is the, With so many meetings, whether they are the quarterly meetings or the daily meetings, I mean, one of the things that I think I've learned or that I've seen is that so many meetings just rely on the defaults of the way that we've always done them. And those defaults for me can sort of spread to many things, right? I mean, they can be as simple as we default to a 60-minute meeting because Outlook gives us a 60-minute standard option when we open to set a meeting, right? So people default to sixty minutes or you know if you're in a meeting, they default to having a presentation and then having an open conversation instead of anything else, or they default to, you see it all the time, like in your Outlook calendar, kind of people default naming meetings to who's there and how frequent, right? It's the weekly leadership team meeting, for example. And it's the same thing with, with those kinds of, because it's a quarterly meeting, doesn't mean that we have to wait until the quarter to practice something or to pilot how it will work next time right so if we can if we can start to sort of break the status quo of how we do things and just assume that the default means that hey we can't we can't try this again until next quarter right it means that we'll wait right but if we can get people Sort of letting go some of those assumptions around defaults, then we can start challenging. Well, let's try this. So let's pilot this. So let's role model and see how it would work, right? And I think that's the benefit. Sort of just shifting that mindset that that's the only time that it can happen, or that's the only way that it can work, right? And I think that's one of the big things in change as well as helping people to shift their mindset about what they believe is possible, right? So they just go to those those defaults all the time, the way it's always been the way we've always done
0: it. Yeah, it's interesting because it comes back to something we were talking about in the pre-show chat and this notion that, um, I I started thinking about it as in this notion that change can be almost fractal, right? Because you've got these tiny little micro changes that can add up to be a real big, big change. And people tend to focus on the big changes and almost ignore these tiny ones that can be the source of quite drastic change. And I think focusing on some of that stuff can be really powerful because those are the moments where we get to practice and learn and reflect and and make those shifts. And also, specifically in the pre-show chat, you were talking about change can actually start in meetings, Mm -hmm. right? Like the way we're changing behaviors, the way we're talking about projects, the way we're even imagining this big initiative. It's going to impact how the initiative comes out, right? And how we even talk about possibilities and shift our mindsets. And the thing I wrote down is that often change is scary. People are afraid of the big change, right? And so if you normalize it by making these tiny shifts, it's not quite so scary. Yeah. Yeah. And then once people feel the momentum and understand what it means, then they become more comfortable with it. So I don't know, that's that's kind of what was bubbling up for me as I was listening to some of that. I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on these kind of local micro changes and how that could benefit folks.
1: I love how you said that because it makes me think of more often than not, isn't that really how change happens with small, many small changes that ultimately add up to something big, right? I mean, I know sometimes it does happen as dramatic, like major shift sort of changes that happen, but many times it happens with small changes that happen along the way, so much so that sometimes you don't even see it happening, right? Like I can think back in my experience of working, working with clients where at the end they say, no, this is the way that we've always done it when it was so different in the beginning, right? But they forget all the little things that we changed in this journey to get us to the point where it's like, no, our team works in such an amazing way now, right? That, you know, like we have such a a problem-solving focus and a culture of continuous improvement. We do all of that, but they totally forget what it was like at the beginning. But it's been all these small changes that happen. I also feel that, like I was saying in the pre-show notes, that meetings are a real tipping point for making change happen right? You can really start making things happen there. I think meetings are really powerful cultural shaping moments. And when you start to change some of those things that happen in meetings, and so many meetings are just bad because they're always, that's just the way they've always been done. And nobody's thought about how to make them better or how to change or how to change them. And when we can shift the meetings that we have, we can change the way that people feel about working with each other, how they work together to get know different different results we can change the culture of teams and organizations just through working on meetings
0: i completely agree you know it's like uh, one of the reasons why we took such a strong focus on meetings and the impetus for writing magical meetings etc and there's just so much that can be done in those moments just to shift how work gets done how people feel about their work etc. and I wanted to come back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier cuz I meant to get your thoughts on this and I'm still curious around this idea around investing in change and the feeling that oh we can't invest we don't have enough time it made me think about eco-cycle from liberating structures and how it's such a great tool to kind of look at your portfolio and map out all the things that you're working on. And if you've got stuff in your poverty trap and you got stuff in your rigidity trap, you know, it's an immediate eye opener that, like, oh, what if we just divest this? Then we can like free up time. So I'm, I'm curious if you've used the EcoCycle in these moments or if there are other tools. You know, also peter drucker's calendar review comes to mind as yeah. like ways that people can kind of just break out of this like hamster wheel of just like oh i'm i'm in this kind of rut and then in- invest in change.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, i love ecocycle as a as a way of thinking about that as well. And i think one of the things that makes me think about that you were that you were touching on before is the fact that it is scary and even when you use something like ecocycle there the letting go of the things that you need to let go. And the thing with change is it takes a lot of courage, right? So we have to trust that we recognize that that is where it is and we do need to let that go and create space for something else to happen, right? And it's in that the ambiguity and the unknown that causes that scariness and the fear that we have, right? So it takes a lot of courage and it takes a lot of courage as well for people to try new things as well. And I think that's the thing with with change as well. You know, we started this conversation with why does change fail? Like I said, so many reasons, right? So many reasons because if you're not creating a space and environment where people are encouraged to try new things, right? And to learn from that and to recognize that, not everything is gonna be a success, that we're gonna learn more from the things that don't work than the things that do work in some ways, right? But, but they have to have the environment to be able to do that. And this is the thing with like meetings and leadership as well, because when leadership shows up in a meeting and they're like, well, why did you do that, right? What do you do is you, you shut down all the courage that people have to try anything else. Because if it's seen in a way that isn't encouraged, then you won't take the chance to try it again, right? So, it, you know, whether whether you're using EcoCycle or anything just from changing the way that you do a meeting, for example, that requires somebody to do something new, which means stepping out of doing what they were doing before. And I think for me as well, that also connects to learning because a lot of what people have done before, they've learned and it's gotten them to this point in their career and, and it's what's made them successful. And now you're asking them in a way to let go of what's made them successful and try something new. So you're asking them to sort of give up what they have been rewarded for that's made them, that's brought them to this point and to sort of explore something new. Right. So there's a cost to learning something new. And and there's also, you know, that's scary. And there's a lot of fear in that as well. 100%.
0: I love you brought that up because I've been thinking a lot about this over the last six months. And it's this concept that change has this inherent sense of loss of identity. Because if we're shifting from on-premise hosted technology systems to in the cloud, and I'm a systems admin who knows on-prem hosting in and out, What does my world mean when we're in the cloud? Is there even a place for me in this organization? Like, I have to change identities. I have to reinvent myself. And it's really scary. And people just default to like, that fear goes straight into, I'm going to lose my job. Yeah. Tomorrow, next month, a year from now, I'm not going to be who I think of as myself. That's like existentially frightening, right?
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And that's, you know, that's why we have to be able to create environments that have an element of safety for them. You know, as facilitators, we talk all the time about psychological safety, but I think that extends not just to the, you know, the workshops or the environments that we create in meetings, but it extends to how we think and how you create the journey for change, right? How you help people navigate that journey for change. They have to feel safe enough to want to go on that journey and to keep trying because because they're going to be a whole host of different reasons why it gets hard and a whole host of things that we need to relearn. If we knew it, we would be doing it already in the beginning. We wouldn't it wouldn't be a change journey because we'd already know, right? So you know the fact the fact that it is just a change journey means that it's something new that we have to change. And the change isn't always I love the way that in these experiences, most people start off talking about others that need to change. And somewhere along the journey, they realize that I also need to change. So it becomes from external to internal because as you go through the journey, you realize it's not just about other people doing things differently, but it's also about what you need to learn and what you need to do differently. So it is very much a personal growth, right? And a personal challenge, like you said. And you have to feel safe enough to, to kind of step into that space and that unknown, ambiguous I don't know, darkness in a way and kind of come out the other side, right? The liminal spaces, as we kind of call them, the liminal spaces of sort of entering and not knowing exactly what it's going to look like on the other side.
0: You know, it's really a strong point you bring up about ambiguity in the liminal spaces. And and it's really critical that people are equipped with the tools and the mindsets and the encouragement and support to move through that part of the journey I think it's really difficult for people to do that without an overarching purpose or expectation or reason why we're even going about this. And if that's at all shallow or ill-conceived or poorly communicated, Mm -hmm. I think that really does a disservice to any of the work, you know, because if people are in that liminal space and they start to doubt And then they don't have that bedrock of, of what's unifying us. Ooh, that's, that's treacherous.
1: Absolutely. I think, you know, belief is one of the first things that we have to create for people to even want to go on the journey, right? They have to believe not only, you know, the team, the organization that we're going to be in a better place, but I'm going to be in a better place that I'm going to, I'm going to learn from this that I want to see this be different. Right. So they have to have a personal level of belief that it can happen and that even going on this journey is going to be a positive thing, right? Something that I want to do. So that belief and that purpose, if you said, that kind of belief and that purpose, they have to have that to make it meaningful for them. So that in all of those difficult moments, like you said, you kind of, that's what you fall back on, right? That you remember that rock that you have that kind of keeps you, keeps you kind of pushing through those difficult moments.
0: You know, this is also reminded me of this elementary school, that, uh, I did some work with, with one of my software startups and we, we had an application to make mobile kind of safer for kids. And the school was doing a collaboration with AT&T. And so we were kind of creating in classroom software experience using our platform. uh, So the teachers could use these devices in the room with students. And this was well before the pandemic. So like, it's kind of funny that, uh, that they were kind of almost prepping for these days, they had a lot of really, really creative devices that they would use. This is a, a school that worked with um, pre-K students all the way up to the sixth grade. And they started off as a mental health institute and then decided that they would could do more and extended work with these individuals if they created a school because then they could be with them more often. And just coming back to your frequency thing, they could have impact and change on these students if, if they spent more time with them were there at these critical moments. And so because of that, there was a lot of cool techniques that, in, that you saw throughout the daily interactions. And I know this is a long story, so, so I'll get to the end here really quick. But uh, one of the teachers had this really cool tool and it was just a, a thermometer, like a thermometer that you might use on the wall to track your fundraiser, mm-hmm. you know, like we're we've raised so much money this week, and then it gets higher next week, and yep. so on. So. And so, when a child was misbehaving or or just overheated and and just like really emotional in that moment, they would go to the thermometer, and she would say, "Where are you?" And they would place their finger on the thermometer, and then she would remind them, "We need to be down here." And they would sit with the thermometer as they transition down to where they needed to be. And so often, if we're in that situation, the request is calm down. It's like, I want you to change right now atomically like a the, like a light switch. And this thermometer is a much better metaphor because it depicts the journey. It's something that happens over time. We can't just flip a switch. We can't just change instantly. And I think that maybe if I would be so bold that might be the main reason that change fails to come back to the original question. Cause you, you keep anchoring on this metaphor of the journey. You're talking about a journey and if people aren't thinking about it as a journey and expecting like, Hey, we're going to put a plan together. We're going to work this plan and we're going to change versus like realizing it's a journey we're going to hit obstacles, we're going to have to change protocols because we're going to hit stuff unexpected. Etc. So anyway, I know that was a long buildup, but I really I wanted to just anchor back on that journey and get your thoughts there.
1: Well, what I love about your story, Doug, is the the recognition of the feelings that happen throughout the experience. Is that it isn't all going to be just smooth sailing and that we're gonna have really difficult moments which bring out that sort of frustration and you know, and all of that kind of that sense of Difficulty, you know, and whatever that looks like in terms of how we feel, and what is so great about that story is that using the metaphor of the thermometer, or, or I, I'd say, like in my real like the model of the thermometer is what you can do is you can physically place yourself in it, and you can so, and by almost taking it, the feeling outside of yourself, you can say this is where I am, and then I can sort of I can start to think about okay, well, where do I need to be, right? So you know, the fact that I can. Place myself in something else, right? Helps me to think about well, what can I do differently? And in my experience, like we've, I've used a lot of models that help people do that, right? You know, so whether you're using any one of the the change models, you know, whether it's Kotter's model or you know, many many different models that are out there, but Elizabeth Kubler Ross's stages of grief model is one that I've used very often as well to kind of say, well, where are you and just how are you feeling at the moment, and recognize that. Because I'm here it doesn't only mean that I'm only going to move forward. I can move back, and I can I can keep moving up and down because the feelings will change. I'll have days of real success where I feel like this is great, and we're making we're making um, progress, and you know there's great problem solving and there's acceptance and excitement in that. And there are days where it just feels like nothing is happening, and I'm really frustrated with this. And that's why it's, it is such an experience for people, right? Because it is that that journey of not only kind of what we're going through as a collective together, but recognizing that each person individually is going to have a journey in that as well. And they're going to have feelings associated with it and, and just a reaction to kind of what's happening day to day as well.
0: It's so important. And you kind of touched on another thing I was thinking about with regards to the journey, which is, this notion that it's difficult to get started. Like a lot of times people have issues. You mentioned the inertia earlier, you know, there's startup energy and, you know, how do we even just get out of the gate? But I feel like maintaining that momentum, you know, once you do manage to build it, which is no small feat in itself, but gosh, like when it's like (laughs) the 25th hour and you're like, uh, you know, just beaten down, you know, when it's two years into the pandemic and, <laughs> we're, we're, you know, like, we're still, we're like, wait, there's another variant. How do you respond in those moments and support each other and just keep moving through the obstacles and knowing that we have that end in sight? So I, I don't know. Do you have any Do you have any go-to advice or or, or models or tools that help people when they're in that just disillusionment or or just that, you know, it's just like, wow, more obstacles?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, part of that for me is just helping people remember how far they've come. So, you know, because it still feels like there's always feels like there's so much further to go, but we forget about how far we've come you know, like you're midway up the ladder, but you forget that you were all the way way down at the bottom before, right? You know, but you're that much closer to the top. So remembering how far you've come. And I think, you know, that's the benefit as well in change of having a community of people that work on it because we support each other in those moments, right? So you have people that bring the energy and the positive belief and the way of like, no, no, don't forget how far we come. Let's just keep going, right? If you're all on your own all the time, you can give in to that kind of, it just feels like it's endless. And I'm not, I don't know how to, how to make, how to continue to make progress. So I think an important ingredient in change as well is having the community of people together that are sort of bought into this. We're all here to make it happen. And some days I feel like we're not making progress, but you're totally like, come on, let's keep going. Right. And I think so I think that's really important in those moments as well. And I'm sure there are lots of models and tools and things that people can do. But I think it just comes down sometimes to the emotional support that you get from the community when you when you are there and people are giving the encouragement, they're sharing the positive mindsets and they're, you know, sharing the kind of just that that motivation to keep going and to keep the momentum going.
0: Yeah, that positivity is is really important. I think that oftentimes, especially when it's a big change initiative and we're kind of focused on the big prize, it can be easy to forget to celebrate the small victories. Mm -hmm. And that can, to your point, like looking at our progress to date is really important. And if we're celebrating along the way, then we've got our trophy wall that we can point back to and say, hey, this is like, this is good. And maybe even some of the failures were fine Mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Rather than having this feeling of we've been beat down by all these failures, like look at how much we've learned. So, how how do we frame what's happened as a lens toward where we're trying to go? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think the learning from, you know, the, like we said earlier, the successes and the failures are are so important and just recognizing that they've all been part of bringing us to where we are, right? I, I think, you know, what you hit on there as well is that, again, because we're often just so busy in our lives and in our work and there's always so much to be done we rush past the celebrations of how far we have come right we don't take the time to sort of recognize what it means and what the significant changes that's happened which is what you you were saying earlier it's it's about all these little changes that happen along the way but sometimes we don't even recognize that they've happened because we haven't we haven't looked back at them to see where we were before that right so the the recognition and the celebration of just seeing where we are at and the pausing to do that is so important in the journey. Otherwise, it just feels like it's only you can only see the big mountain that you're trying to climb ahead of you. You don't see how far up you already are, right?
0: You know, it's like it reminds me too of uh, liberating structures to come back to that and in complexity also. If we're celebrating and taking the pause to acknowledge, it means we're also reflecting. Mm-hmm. And there's so much power in that reflection. And I feel like oftentimes people miss out on that because they're just executing the plan Yep. and they didn't take the moment to just say, what do I think about what just happened? And we might readdress the plan. So I'm wondering how much reflection and debrief plays a role in the work you do.
1: I think that's, that's very critical to the work we do. And coming back to what we were talking about before in terms of frequency, that is on all of the frequencies in the sense of like working with people to change meetings, debriefing after every meeting right about what went well and what would you change in the next one right so debriefing on the micro level of the event that just happened but then debriefing on a on a more macro level in terms of how far we've come so you have to debrief at sort of different levels debrief or reflect i would say at at different levels right on the the thing that just happened but also on where we are in the journey so far so kind of making sure that you're reflecting on the the different horizons so to speak, to help bring it all together,
0: right? So deep re- reflection, definitely popular or a very common technique when you're thinking about creating learning environments and systems. And, you know, this is something that we've talked about and you've mentioned that it's, it's kind of part of your journey and the work you do. And it made me think about the relationship between learning and, and change And how if you're going to experience any kind of change, you have to learn, right? Because the definition of change is like things aren't going to be the way tomorrow, the way they are today. And so if they're different, we got to learn this different thing. And if we're not creating environments or systems where learning is encouraged or the conditions for learning are not established, then we're kind of doing a disservice to our goal. And, you know, that's kind of what led Eric and I to develop the workshop design canvas because it's like, let's apply learning experience and design principles to workshops and meetings and anything we're doing so that we can kind of create these learning environments and whatnot. And so I'm really curious how that's shown up in your work because our experiences and what I were, have been noticing seems to align with a lot of stuff you've been talking about. So I'm really curious to see how that's, how that's shown up around you know, the need to support learning, even when people aren't specifically trying to skill build.
1: Yeah. I, I think the whole like you said, the whole change journey is built on the premise that we're gonna be learning new things along the way, right? The thing with learning for me, I think in the spirit of that change journey is it's contextual to the moment that you're in, right? And it's so it's it's different to sort of education, right? Or, you know, it's that's why I would say it's not it's not about like sending people necessarily to kind of, hey, go and learn all about change. <laughs> We're going to learn more about change by going through the change journey itself. Am I taking moments in time where we say, okay, well, what do we need now, right? What is it that's missing now that we need? And let's, let's sort of figure that out and let's apply that here. So it, there's a connection with what's actually happening. I think that's important to make, to create the environment for learning. Right, as opposed to an artificial construct for learning. I think it's it's relevant to what's happening in the journey, right? So I think that there's a there's a connection between that sort of that personal need that you have and the learning that's happening throughout the journey. Does that make sense?
0: (laughs) No, absolutely. The thing that I think about is how oftentimes folks will look at a situation like this and they think, all right, well let's just train everyone on design thinking, or let's just train everyone on how to be better product managers, or let's train everyone on, you know, this new way of thinking or this new technique or cloud computing or whatever it is. And then once they're armed with that knowledge, they'll just go apply it.
1: Never happens. And then,
0: <laughs> yeah. And it's that thing you talked about, the knowing-doing gap, right? Yeah. And I guess what I was getting at around and I think everything you, you said is really spot on. The thing I was just really laser focused and think is so important is if we're gonna have the change, then sure we might give them the knowledge, but we also need to be working through applying it and then reflecting and rinsing and repeating it's that journey you talked about. Cause if it's not that journey's not happening and it's not being monitored and we're not setting up the conditions in that journey for really good learning. Then it's going to set it up for failure.
1: Yeah, I mean, like you said, I think you know more often than not, you you send people on these courses and they they come back and things are exactly the same because there's no there's no connection between the work that they're doing and the application of that knowledge and those things need to come together. So learning, in a way, has to be at the right moment, right? And it has to it has to have the the sort of personal agency in it, that, you know, I have to, I have to need it so that I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, now I understand this thing. Now I'm going to go away and try it and I'm going to see if that works for me. Right. So I, I have to have that kind of relationship with the need to learn it, to really shift for it to shift for me. Otherwise I'm gaining knowledge, which is a very interesting thing to do as well, but I don't know that I'm necessarily learning something new in the way that I think that you and I are talking about it in in the way that it's needed to Achieve change.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like coming back to the knowing doing gap, you're gaining knowledge, but you're not changing behaviors.
1: Right. Because right after that knowing doing gap is the doing being gap right <laughs> right after the right after you kind of know it but it's kind of now I'm, now I do it but kind of have, have I really sort of almost do I really understand it am I can I be it rather than just know what to do so right after that sort of knowing doing moment is that sort of you know that shift into the being kind of space and the living it space which is where you're really bringing that learning into how you work right and how what you believe how it's changing in a way it's changing you the beliefs that you had before about what was possible and now you're doing it in a different way so you believe something different about it
0: yeah it's almost like these layers right like we got to understand how to integrate it Mm -hmm. and then once we understand how to integrate it then we have to internalize it
1: absolutely and we have to get to the point where it is like you say it kind of it lives inside of us right so that it becomes in a way, the, our new way of being, so that we kind of use it to almost thrive and continue to kind of go forward, right? That it becomes that, the the base, the new baseline, in a way.
0: Yeah, you know, you mentioned kata earlier, and I I feel like to me that's such a powerful model for making some of these shifts, just because it's got that cadence built in, of like, well, we're gonna set this destination, and then let's just like regularly on schedule, mm-hmm. just kind of see what's going on. And the whole point is to just constantly see what's going on. And so like we can be proud that we did that thing that we were supposed to, which was see what's going on. And so the whole process is kind of designed around integrating. And if you do enough integration, then naturally and in- internalizing being is like an artifact, right? Because mm-hmm. just More and more, you rehearse it.
1: Yeah. And the thing that you're making me think of, which you know, it's a little bit different what you're saying, but where we started this conversation off around facilitation is I think facilitation is a really important part of making change happen because it isn't just like we've talked about, you know, the need for learning inside of change and the the personal agency in it and people going, having the courage to try new things. It's all about, can you create a space where people will step into that? unknown, right? We'll step into those sort of liminal spaces. And I think for me, that's where facilitation has really played a key role because it's not about telling people what to do, right? You don't, I don't have the answers. You don't exactly know how this is going to pan out and you can't tell people or, you know, kind of force them to go on this journey. They have to want to be there and they have to want to go through the personal discovery that's going to happen in it as well. And I think facilitation is such a, a powerful, let's call it a tool, but to making that happen, right? Because it's about what we do as facilitators is create the space, I think, where we can really ignite the thinking of other people, where they can start to think about how they can see things differently, right? And they can, as a, as a group and individual, have these moments of sort of aha uh-huh and discovery that makes them feel excited to go forth and try something new. Right. I think when we are, when we're at our best at facilitators, that's what we unlock in people. We unlock that, that new thinking and that, that passion for action and excitement. So that very much for me, facilitation is a part of making change happen because I'm, and a role as a change agent as well, you're you're never the leader and you have no um no authority <laughs> for anyone. So it's about how do you how do you create spaces and engage people so that they are excited and encouraged to want to go forward and try new things?
0: So awesome. I couldn't agree more and think that facilitation holds so much in respect to where the future might go and where we might see things unfold. And it's really fascinating too because I think so much of the discipline and the community around facilitation is somewhat of an emergent thing. Like it's it's been it's you know the word's been around for a while, but a lot of these techniques and a lot of this thinking is building upon skills that people have built through different routes and and different different roles and different perspectives, but we're starting to see them emerge as a new a new discipline of their own, which is really fascinating. So I guess I'm curious, I want to segue that to a question, which is as you think about facilitation, as you just defined it, and perhaps this trend that it's becoming more popular and more of a known resource where it's like companies will, you know, eventually hire facilitators and give them those titles. And it becomes a much more kind of accepted and and known role within organizations, what do you think that unlocks? What do you think that creates and opens up for organizations and, and even just society as a whole?
1: Yeah, well, I think for me, it really, what it means is about getting the best out of everyone when you create that, you know, and if we can... If organisations have uh, think about think in that way about you know having facilitators whether it's for meetings or workshops or whatever or, or as part of the change experience right that what it means is we're getting the best out of everyone that has come together because that's the intent to, of the facilitator to sort of serve the group and to and to help them emerge what's best for them to move forward and that can change as time goes on right but the, the facilitator has no isn't bought into what they decide to do. Like you said, it's, 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 it's entirely for the group and it's emergent. They don't know where it's going to go either, but they, they trust that they can help the group think differently and see things differently so that they are motivated to try and do something new. So I think that's what it unlocks, is that it unlocks the the capacity and the potential of the whole organization. If we can get everybody working at their best, what would that be like to work in an organization that was like that, right? When everybody was sort of at their best, not not only individually, but we were at our collective best together. What would that mean in terms of how an organization performed and what it felt like to work there?
0: Mm. Yeah, it's so many layers, right? I love this concept of collective best. Me too. So, you know, I think we're kind of coming up on our time here. So I wanted to make sure that we gave you an opportunity to leave our listeners with a final thought.
1: Well, I think my my final thought would be that, you know, we've spent our time talking about talking about change. And I think change is inevitable, you know, as we've seen huge change in the last two years in the world alone in terms of so many different things and in the way that we've people work and, and the way that people feel about so many different topics. So change is inevitable. And I think, and I think we just have to recognize that the process of change is not easy and it's not just, a, it's not just a, a sort of a get on the bus and then get off at the next stop and it's all change. It, it, it is a journey. And that's why, you know, we often refer to it like that. So I would say change is inevitable and change is a journey And I do really believe, I personally believe that facilitation is a, is a really important, if you want to call it tool or skill that helps navigate that process of change. So I think that is a really important success factor to helping you be successful on your, on your change journey.
0: Fantastic. Well, you know, it's so awesome to have you on the show and chat with you today and I certainly enjoyed it. Look forward to talking again soon and getting the course launched. Probably by the time this airs, it will be launched. It's been a pleasure chatting with you as always, and hope to talk to you soon.
1: Thank you so much, Doug. I appreciate it being here. It's been great.
0: Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com